And the resurrection is always such a big surprise, such a great surprise to us. Kind of like the surprise I experienced when I walked in and saw a drum set set up in the church. Resurrection Sunday is such a surprise. And then if that weren't enough, I look up and I see Laura with a bass guitar. <laughs> Resurrection Sunday is such a big surprise. I didn't know she played the bass. The disciples are about to be surprised as well. In John chapter 21. But as it stands right now, they were defeated. And as far as they could tell, the story had ended. They were defeated. They were out for the count. But there was a moment before the death of Jesus Christ, there was a moment where the disciples had great optimism, great hope that the movement would continue even after Jesus had died. You remember the story in Luke chapter 21, verse 24. After Jesus informs the disciples of his imminent death, the Bible says a dispute developed among them as to which one of them was going to be the greatest after Jesus left the scene. This lets us know that the disciples could envision a world without Jesus. The, the, the disciples could envision the faith surviving, the movement lasting long after Jesus left the scene. But now Jesus is gone. And no one, not even Peter, is chomping at the bit to usurp Christ's role. In fact, their ad hoc church has lost one of its members, Judas, lost him to sin. No one wanted to lead this motley crew all of a sudden. They were all eager to take the lead when Jesus left, and now no one wants to be in the lead of this flailing movement. But a natural-born leader did emerge from among them, Peter. They all turned and looked to Peter to get their marching orders. Peter, what shall we do? Peter, what's the plan? Peter, how are we going to revive this ministry? Peter, how are we going to recruit fresh blood and grow our numbers? Peter, well, Peter, you wanted to be the head. You wanted to be at the head of the table. Here you are. This God-sized effort now rests on your shoulders. So Peter, great man of God, tell us what should we do now? Our master is dead, stricken by God as we learned Friday night. Our funds are drying up. There are no more throngs of people standing in line to get healed or for teaching. 
We have no place to gather. We have no means of getting out the message without being targeted by the authorities. Peter, what shall we do now? And by the way, Peter, what is the message that we will proclaim? How will we explain to newcomers the reason for Jesus' demise? Regarding location, should we launch our ministry here in Jerusalem or should we go back to Galilee to launch? Maybe we should go and find the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and hook up with them and start a church together. You know, they really like Jesus in Samaria. Peter, what shall we do? And here stands Peter, the unofficial leader. They're all waiting to hear his master plan. Then finally Peter speaks. Peter tells them what his next move is going to be. Peter says in John chapter 21, verse 3, I am going fishing. I'm going fishing. It wasn't what they expected to hear. It wasn't what they wanted to hear. I am going fishing. What are we going to do, Peter? What about the ministry? Peter is packing his nets. I'm going fishing. wasn't what Peter wanted to say. May not have been what Peter wanted to do. It wasn't very creative and it certainly wasn't going to move the ministry forward. But Peter's decision was grounded in the reality that stood before him. The master and the crowds and the excitement has abated. The master and our message has been defeated, crushed and evaporated. So am I. I am defeated. I am tapping the mat. I am crying, uncle. I am going fishing. I am going to pass the day away in familiar distraction. Not going to a Bible study. I'm not going to rack my brain about it. It is what it is and I cannot change it. Peter is right. Contrary to popular opinion, Peter is right. The 127th Psalm, verse 1 says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman wakes up but in vain. The best thing the watchman can do is go fishing. Peter seems to conclude that it is beyond the scope of his power, beyond the scope of his authority to build out this movement or to keep the disciples together. He has been humbled. And if there is any silver lining to being defeated, it is this, that defeat humbles us. Defeat causes us to look to God all the more. Defeat slaps us with the distasteful reality that we are both mortal and fallible. Defeat, thank God for defeat. Yet even in this tentative state, even though Peter has no vision, Peter has no plans for the disciples, his gift remains evident. Peter says to them, I am going fishing. And notice this, he did not invite 
anyone to go with him. Peter said, I am going fishing. This wasn't supposed to be a large-scale event that required much planning. This was merely a knee-jerk reaction, a spontaneous reaction to the palpable absence of the Lord. Jesus is gone and so am I. Jesus is gone and I am going fishing. Every man for himself. This is what I intend to do. Now each of you, ten disciples, nine disciples, you must decide for yourselves what you're going to do. As for me, I am going fishing. He grabs his digs. <laughs> he pulls out his old fishing tackle box, unfolds his nets that haven't been used in years. And Peter starts walking and whistling toward the boat. But he looks around and here comes the ten disciples following him. And they say to him, we are coming with you. This is so funny. Jesus has died. They are in total shock, and now it seems like they're in denial. Peter says, I'm not mourning. I'm not going to any funeral. I'm going fishing. You guys do what you want. Where are you going? We are going fishing. Some of them didn't even know how to fish. All of them weren't fishermen. The tax collector didn't know how to fish. We don't care. We're just going with you, Peter. Wherever you're going, when God gives you that leadership, that gifting, people just follow wherever you're going. I'm going, I'm going fishing with you. I'm sure this was a burden for Peter. I don't want you to go fishing with me. I want to go sit somewhere by myself. I like to fish. I love to fish. I have never caught a fish, but I love to fish. I love to go out to the water, cast my, my rod out there, sit it down, drink a Pepsi, read a book, hang out. And if my line starts shaking, I get frustrated. Please don't bite my worm. I'm not here to catch fish. I just want to sit here in the sun, drink my Pepsi and read my book. It just looks cool when you do it with a rod in the water. <laughs> Some of them were going fishing just because it was something to do. Didn't know the first thing about fishing. But Peter has lost vision and so have they. We are also coming with you. Coming with me, coming with me, where? I'm not going anywhere. I said I'm going fishing. Why are you coming with? The 10 are attracted to the gift. It's not Peter's personality that draws them. It's not his demeanor, it's not his temperament, not his counseling skills, not his oratory skills. It is the gift. <laughs> Something inside of these disciples is drawn to the gift and they follow without raising the obvious and practical questions that any thinking person would have had. No, they have no questions. They just go out together and get in the boat. I guess they figure fishing won't help anything, but it sure can't, help, can't hurt anything. So we'll follow you and we go fish. They're out there fishing all day, all night. And the Bible says that night they caught nothing. Oh, great. <laughs> My master has gone and left us all alone. Some of my nets have been dry rotted from years of not being used. 
I don't know how to lead these 10 disciples. I'm not even a good disciple myself. And when the chips were down, I denied Jesus three times. And now, after spending three years of my life following him, even my fishing skills have been diminished from lack of practice. I must be the world's greatest loser. I can't even catch fish. Peter has a lot on his mind. A lot more than just fishing. Anyone with the wayward child can relate to this. I am a mediocre disciple. My prayer life is on life support. I can't seem to acquire a taste for regular Bible study. My faith is always teetering on the brink of defeat. And on top of all of that, I'm a bad parent. My children are going astray. And no matter how hard I try, I just can't seem to reel them back in. I am the world's greatest loser. Anyone with a broken marriage, anyone on the verge of losing their job, anyone filing for bankruptcy, anyone unable to control their weight, anyone failing in college, unable to find gainful employment, anyone who is suffering I am such a loser. From humility to humiliation, Peter can't even properly perform his lifelong craft. Nothing is going well and nothing is going right. What do you do when nothing is going well? How do you handle it when you feel lost in the darkness, overwhelmed, overworked? What do you do when you feel like you're in over your head? Peter was probably crying within himself. Ashamed to let the other disciples know how horrible he felt. And the capstone of all of his sorrow had to be the fact that he denied Jesus three times. Peter is under pressure. And some people have cracked under this pressure. Some, some would have faltered under this pressure. Some would pack up and venture out to find a place where nobody knows their name, looking for a fresh start. Some people would chalk it all up to fate, throw up their hands, throw in the towel, and officially remove their name from Jesus' role. I quit. I'm finished. I am a loser. I can't do this. This simply cannot be of God, this failure. This defeat must be an indication that I am in the wrong work, on the wrong track, in the wrong place, moving in the wrong direction. I have to change course. This is not working out. Peter didn't go that far. No. While Peter was certainly dismayed, Peter was certainly disillusioned. Peter held his place. He permitted the ten to follow him even though he didn't have a game plan. He didn't turn his back on his responsibilities even though his mission was not yet clear. Peter carried on. It is difficult to carry on in these type circumstances. Difficult to drive through the midst of life's storms. Nearly impossible to maintain any sense of optimism when all signs are pointing to ultimate defeat. Ask the crew of the battleship Moscow. When the sirens on their ship began to ring and the emergency lights started flashing and these two Ukrainian cruise missiles are barreling toward their vessel, ask them how it feels. Mm. 
There was nothing they could do at that point but to sit and to await their impending doom. Ask Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he sits there and waits to be arrested, waits to be beaten and crushed and crucified. Ask him how it feels. Everything in your mind is saying, this cannot be of God. Ask me when the roller coaster gets right to the top and stops for that millisecond before it drops me down, plunging toward the pavement. Ask me how it feels. This cannot be of God. Have you ever, have you ever gotten on the roller coaster and that thing stops up top like that and you're in that front seat and you're just thinking to you, how foolish must I be to even be on this thing? This cannot be of God. I must have lost my mind. That's where Peter is at the top of the roller coaster looking down and seeing ultimate defeat. This cannot be of God. So what can you do? What should you do when life continues to hand you defeats and failures? When nothing seems to be going well? Here's my advice. Just keep on living. If the doctor tells you you only have six months to live, just keep on living for the next six months. Don't find a place to hide away. Don't run away from your reality. Don't opt out of enjoying those final moments of your life, but live. Live on through the night. Live in spiritual defiance of all that you might see and all that you might hear and declare with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives. I cannot see him. I do not hear him. But I am certain that God is with me. And even if I fail, even if I'm not vindicated on this side of heaven, I know that I will see Jesus Christ on the other side. And no negative thing that has happened to me on earth will separate me from the Father's love. I have decided to follow Jesus all the way. Ride or die, sink or swim, I will live. My enemy will not have the final word and I will not be ultimately defeated. I will live. I will keep on living. I thumb my nose at every one of life's challenges and I stand with David before my Goliath and declare to all my spiritual adversaries, the enemy of defeat, the enemy of depression, the enemy named fear, the enemy of anxiety, the enemy called death. I say with David, you came against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day. The Lord will hand you over to me and I will chop off your head and strike you down. Live in defiance when the world tells you that you have failed. Live in defiance when the world tells you that you have been defeated. Say to your Goliath, I know my Redeemer lives. And in the end, I will have the victory. Though there is no sign that I will come out victorious, I will not despair and I will not stand down. I'll take a wait and see approach. I'll hold out hope that all things are possible with my God. Hold out, brothers and sisters. No matter what you're experiencing in this world, just hold out, just keep on living. If you have to mark time, then mark time. 
Your Savior lives, and your Savior is coming to save. And if you hold out long enough, if you practice the sacred art of patience, the day will break for you just like it did for Peter and the ten. Verse 4 says that when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet his disciples did not know it was Jesus. Their hopelessness had so blinded their eyes that they could not distinguish Jesus by his physical features. They couldn't recall his gait. They couldn't recall his posture. They didn't even know it was him, but Jesus knows them. That's what matters most. In my darkest hour, when I cannot see his face, Jesus sees me. That's what matters the most. That even when I can't distinguish him in my trials, Jesus knows who I am. Jesus knows who they are, and Jesus says to them, children, children, you do not have any fish to eat, do you? They answered him, no. Now, now, they don't know this is Jesus they're talking to, and I'm sure they said this with some attitude. Because that's the last question anybody wants to hear when they've been fishing all day and all night and caught nothing. You don't have any fish, do you? You have lost, haven't you? To their frustrated ears, this sounds like a taunt. You see my nets are empty. You see all of us just standing around on this boat. If we had caught something, we'd be busy gutting and cleaning and preparing our meat. You know we haven't caught anything. No, we confess we have caught nothing. Our efforts have not paid off and we are defeated. Satisfied? And Jesus says to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find the fish. And so they cast their net on the right side and they were not able to haul it in because of the great quantity of fish. A lot of people question why Peter went fishing in the first place. A lot of people think Peter was just going AWOL, absent without leave. But Jesus' kind gesture here, Jesus' kind gesture toward them seems to indicate just the opposite. He didn't rebuke them for going fishing after he had died. He wasn't upset with them for trying to get their lives back in a place of normality. Instead, Jesus blesses them to be successful in their familiar distraction. He is gracious to us. He's gracious to them even though they do not appear to be faithful to him. Because grace is the Savior's crowning characteristic. Grace. And John discerned it, that there was something unique about this ending. There was something familiar about this person. And the Bible says in verse 7, he says to Peter, it is the Lord. That's Jesus. This seems just like something Jesus would do. In fact, I recall Jesus did this before. This is the Lord. All of us have those dark times in our lives where it feels like we've been abandoned by heaven. Seasons of loss and seasons of trial that seem like they will never end. And if you've been there, if you've been to that place, 
You know how every once in a while God just gives you a little sign, a little indication that he's still with you. I remember I was going through a very intense trial, just a dark night of the soul, just one of those things Christians experience. And I was so troubled and just frustrated with, with heaven. I was getting no responses and, and nothing was going well. And my wife and I had been looking for a particular house in a particular community for a long time before I, I, I went into my trial. And in the midst of my trial, I'm so troubled and depressed and frustrated about so many things. In the midst of my trouble, I get a phone call from my real estate agent and said, hey, a house just opened up in the community that you're trying. And I said, you know, God, you're so nice. Every once in a while in my darkness, you just give me a little bit to remind me. I'm still here. I know it's dark for you right now. I'm still here. Don't stress. I'm with you. Yeah, man. I love those moments where God nourishes me in the midst of my trouble. It is the Lord. He's blessing us in the midst of our darkness. This is the Lord. And when Simon, Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, the Bible says he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea, just overdoing it, isn't he? It is the Lord. What? I'm sure everybody on the boat was like, what is wrong with this dude, man? <laughs> Peter, spontaneous Peter. He dives into the water. It's the Lord. So excited, so overwhelmed, and so relieved that he doesn't even wait for the boat to dock. He jumps right into the water and swims to Jesus. And this is just my own imagination, but I just imagine Peter really wanted to get to Jesus first for a reason. I really believe Peter wanted to have a private conversation with the Lord. He had so many things to say. Didn't want the other disciples to hear. Peter had to confess some sins, especially that sin of denial. That was just bad. That was a really poor showing on his part. I know he just, I got, I got to talk to him first. I've got to, I've got to get there first and have, have this private conversation. He feels so lost and ashamed and defeated. Peter has something to prove to Jesus. He knows he has a poor track record. He knows he's been disobedient. He knows he's been disloyal. He knows that sometimes he may have come off a bit too forceful with the Savior. On Good Friday, Taylor reminded us that Peter actually rebuked Jesus when Jesus told him he was going to be crucified. Only Peter would do something, rebuke the Savior. Peter had that bad habit of talking too fast, that bad habit of letting his emotions get the better of his faculties. There was so much for Peter to repent for, so much to make amends for. So there goes Peter head first into the water, swimming as if for dear life. <laughs> then comically, the Bible says in verse 8, but the other disciples came in the boat. For they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits away, dragging the net full of fish. They were only 200 cubits. You know how far 200 cubits is? They were only 300 feet from the, from the shoreline. There was no need to jump in the water. We were only 300 feet away, man. What are you doing? They were only 300 feet away. In their minds, I'm sure Peter was just overdoing it. 
We're close to Jesus already, but for Peter, Jesus was not close enough. Peter needed to be even closer to the Savior. He jumps in the water to make up the difference as quickly as he can. We're not told what Jesus and Peter talked about for those few minutes before the other disciples got there, but we can imagine there were a lot of tears. And the Bible says when the rest of the disciples got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already made and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. So Simon Peter went up and hauled the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. They were defeated. Peter had denied Jesus three times. John stood right there in the judgment hall as they pronounced Jesus guilty and began to beat him. John, the one whom Jesus loved, he was right there. He never spoke up for his Savior. The Bible says that the rest of the ten stood afar off from the cross, abandoning Jesus in his final hours. Now when the Savior at last appears, he comes up and he catches these brothers out fishing. Disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. All of them feel like losers. None of them have put on a good showing in response to their lords being railroaded and killed. There's so much to talk about, so much to be said. They need to repent. They need to discuss the Lord's strategic plan for the world. They need to gain a proper understanding of the resurrection. They need marching orders from Jesus. I'm sure when they got to shore, they crowded around him, steel-faced, ready to take their rebuke like men. We know we messed up, Jesus. We know you're going to rebuke us, and we're willing right now to explain and to recommit ourselves to your movement. I know they're standing there. Everyone's kind of tense, waiting to hear what Jesus is going to say to them. And Jesus has freshly risen from the dead. And you wonder, will Jesus give a speech of triumph? Is he going to give a victorious message? It would seem that Jesus' first words would be about his experience his existential crisis of being crucified, his mystical resurrection from the dead, his theological depth. We think Jesus is going to say something very spiritually deep and heavy and weighty. And Jesus says to them in verse 12, as they're all standing there waiting to hear his first words. Jesus says, Doesn't get much deeper than this. <laughs> I know we've done wrong, Jesus. I, I, I know. I'm sorry for what we did here. Yeah, I, I know, I know, I know, I know. I didn't mean to deny you three times, Lord. I, I don't know what happened to me. I don't know. I kind of lost my sight. I know. I understand. I understand. But wait, there's more. 
This is Jesus' response to their failure. This is Jesus' response to their defeat. This is Jesus' response to all of their character flaws, their misgivings, their misunderstandings, their misinterpretations. They've dropped the ball a thousand times. This is Jesus' response. They were looking at their phones during the service, and this was Jesus' response. Yeah, man. You got it? But wait, there's more. Seems odd, doesn't it? In a religious church service, handing out McMuffins. Doesn't it seem strange? <laughs> out of place, improper. <laughs> seems like a really poor showing, doesn't it? This is the message that Jesus brings. I gotta, I gotta say these last two. Well, I bet I'll save this last one. I gotta have one for myself. <laughs> and I'll give Robert one. It's okay, Robert. <laughs> He's been crucified, lied on, abused. Disciples left him and abandoned him while he was on the cross. And Jesus says, okay, we ate breakfast now. Let me repent and be very religious. I'm eating. Come and have breakfast. Come and sit down. Relax, unwind. It's not that serious. I have conquered death. I have conquered hell. I have conquered the grave. This sandwich is so good. <laughs> Relax. Don't let religion drive you in the ground. Don't let guilt and shame and fear take away your appetite. I know Peter was, I want to repent to you. I got to tell you, okay, I'll get one piece of fish then. I'm so hungry, yeah. You've been so distracted by your shame, by your guilt. <laughs> You've lost your appetite. You've lost your zest for living. I died and raised from the dead because I want to have a relationship with you. This is what this is all about. This is not about how good you are. This is not about how bad you are. This is not about how well you perform. This isn't about performance at all. Jesus says, I died because I want to have breakfast with you. And in your sinful state, we could not have communion together. So I've given my life, I've given my blood, I've risen physically and bodily from the dead, and now all I want to do is take a seat 
and do what I've been trying to do since the book of Genesis. Do what I haven't done since I walked with Adam in the garden. I just want to sit with you. His name shall be called Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. All of this was just because I wanted to be with you. You have nothing to prove. I have paid it all and it is finished. So stop crying, stop worrying, stop complaining, stop throwing pity parties, sitting in self-pity, and enjoy the freedom that I have bought for you, and enjoy my presence, and enjoy my company, because this is all it was ever about. <laughs> That's the message. That God so loved the world. I told you God before, God so loved the world. That word love means agapio. And in certain definitions, it actually means to enjoy the company of another person. For God so wanted to be in my company that he gave his only begotten son. <laughs> that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal Life, that's all it was about. I want to be around you so much, I'm willing to give my very best to buy your freedom. And now that I purchased your freedom, how dare you spend one day in bondage? How dare you spend one day in fear, in regret? No, 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 no. <laughs> I've paid it already. Whatever you've done, whatever you're thinking about doing, don't let your conscience disturb you. I've paid it all. Sit down. Let's have breakfast. What a beautiful, beautiful way. I've heard a lot of sermons on the death of Jesus. We've all heard the last seven sayings a million times. That would be seven million times. We've all heard the, the seven last sayings a million times. I've never heard anyone preach on Jesus' final sayings after the resurrection. What did he say when he came back? One of the first things he said was, come on, let's go to Denny's. Let's have breakfast. That seems very simple, doesn't it? And it is as simple as that. We make the Christian faith and the Christian walk so complicated for ourselves. We want to dot every T and cross, cross every T and dot every I. We want to do everything just so, just perfect, because God will be pleased then. And God is saying, man, I'm pleased with you now. If you just take out a few minutes in the morning to chat with me, if you just open your Bible every once in a while and come, I'm pleased with just that. Everything else, your performance and all of that stuff, that, that is an outgrowth of relationship. There are too many people trying to do the work of Jesus Christ who do not even know Jesus Christ. Shall I say it again? There are too many people trying to do the work of Jesus Christ who do not know Jesus Christ. They've never had breakfast with the man. And Jesus says, if you won't sit down and allow me to serve you, you cannot serve me. <laughs> the greatest among you must be your servant. And Jesus says, I will always be your servant because I am the greatest. And your service toward me is an outgrowth of your gratitude and appreciation and your love for all that I've been to you and all that I've done for you. It is not an obligation. You will not get a performance report at the end. I love you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've drawn you with loving kindness. 
Don't come into the relationship and make this a rule-based relationship. Don't make this a performance-based relationship. If you do that, then you contaminate the gospel. Live free. Be free. Enjoy your walk with Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have risen and you have risen indeed. You have risen physically and bodily from the dead. Your sole purpose and your sole intent was so that I could be allowed to have communion with you. Forgive me now for all that I have made this walk. Forgive me for complicating such a simple message. Help me to remember that to be close to you is all you desire and that all of my performance and all of my work is simply an outgrowth of our relationship. Thank you for providing for me. Thank you for buying my peace. Thank you for buying my freedom. By your grace, I pray that you will allow each one of us to walk in that freedom not in the bondage of religion, not in the bondage of fear, not worried about being judged, not worried about failing, not worried about being defeated, because in you there is only yes and amen. You cannot be defeated, and if my life is hidden in you, neither can I. There is nothing to fear. There is nothing to regret. Only life to live and to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.